Hello and welcome to episode 82 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray in the driver's seat, ready to tackle any and all issues that arise as we prepare to poke once again into the darker recesses of the game. It was an extraordinary weekend of golf just gone, with the spotlight firmly on the best women players in the game. The Women's PGA Championship at Atlanta Athletic Club was an enthralling tournament. Nellie Corder claiming her first major title on the back of some truly extraordinary golf. And it brought sharply into focus once again the relationship that golf more broadly has with women. It's a topic we've discussed many times before, and we're going to do it again today, courtesy of an excellent and important article in the June issue of Golf Australia magazine written by Melbourne-based journalist Karen Harding. Karen will join us in just a moment. But first, my co-host in this ongoing audio adventure, not in the studio today because of the current lockdown in Sydney, but beaming in digitally thanks to the wonders of modern technology. Adrian Lowe, good to have you aboard and looking forward to this discussion with Karen today. I know you enjoyed her article at least as much as I did. Absolutely. Yep. It's long overdue getting Karen on the podcast as well. So very excited for today. The elusive Karen Harding, as she's been known in some circles around here. Let's meet today's guest of honour. As I mentioned, Karen Harding's a Melbourne-based journalist and former editor of the now sadly defunct Golf Victoria magazine. She's a regular contributor to Golf Australia magazine, and her story in the June issue titled Aussie Golf's Chrysalis Moment is not only a good read, but an important snapshot at an important time in the game. Karen once took Gabby Ruffles to the 15th hole in a pennant match at Melbourne's Commonwealth Golf Club, something we might get more details about later in the show. We won't go there just yet. Karen, welcome. Yes, I do have my sources and you will explain yourself later. Thanks for giving us some time. We're looking forward to it. Thank you for having me. Yes, indeed. I can already feel the frost coming from south to north. Let's start at the beginning. Whose idea was this story? It was originally uh, Brendan James's idea. He was doing a story uh, on the Athena. He had Paul Prendergast commissioned to do that, and he asked me if I'd like to do a story on uh, women's golf to accompany that. Um, he gave me a brief for it, and I drifted a little from the brief, but... <laughs> Well, going to happen sometimes, isn't it? Uh, but when I told him where I was headed, he was happy with it. Yeah. Uh, for those not sure, uh, Brendan James is the editor at Golf Australia magazine. Where did you drift? How is it possible to not drift with an issue? And I imagine even for what you wrote, which was extensive, at least as much again was left out. Uh, absolutely it was. I think when I first wrote it, it uh, I jokingly said to BJ, uh, you realise that if I get worked up, this could go as far as 5,000 words and it did go to three and I had to start pruning. So there were certainly things in there that I would like to follow up on, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you've got a word count for a reason, as we all know. Um, so we got in there mm. the important things, I think. For those who haven't read it, shame on them. And as Logue will no doubt tell you, the link will be in the show notes, of course, mm. uh, which I'm sure he was going to get it to. It just magically appears there. <laughs> it just magically appears there, mm. as is everything else. What were the sort of main touch points uh, in the story? And, and what did you start with the idea of and what did it transform into, this story? Uh, well, BJ just asked me to do a story generally on women and girls in golf, um, and I thought about it for a bit and I thought, well, we've done a lot of coverage already about the issues facing women and, and girls. It's about time that we moved beyond identifying the problem and having a look at the progress made because there has been significant progress made um, just in the four years really since Vision 2025 and the RNA Women in Golf Charter. Um, were launched, which was a call to action more than anything. But since then, we've moved into 
and an action-taking phase rather than awareness-raising. So I wanted to address that. Um, in terms of the butterfly analogy, uh, that came uh, through as sometimes things do in a funny little way. I happened to be out for a, a walk and I heard a, a guy in the garden say, I have to get rid of these caterpillars. And I was just musing on why caterpillars are considered so ugly and a pest when they transform into such beautiful creatures. And then, as of course, as you do when you're on a walk, you just start to drift mentally. And I started to see some analogies between the metamorphosis of the butterfly and women's sport, women's golf specifically. And so that started to germinate in my mind. Then I started to think about the age groups that have been analysed so thoroughly. And I thought, you know, my own experience, and that's the one area where you consider yourself an authority is your own lived experience, um, was quite different to other people in terms of the stages didn't necessarily correlate at my age to the same age as other people. And so I decided then to do a straw poll and speak to a handful of people in each of the 14 defined categories. I then added a 15th category of girl dads because I was interested in their perspective. And I found that extremely interesting because my lived experience, of course, is not the same as the lived experience of people in modern times because it's a different world. Mm. So it was really finding out what the women and girls of today feel they need. And I found that really illuminating. Mm. Hat tip, by the way, because that's a it's a wonderful tool, but it's not an easy tool to use quite often. That whole idea of a of a sort of a, the analogous thing with the butterflies, and that was a spectacularly good one. And I think probably, as it always does, narrative tells stories much better than facts do, don't they? Yes, I the think narrative so. Is yes, important. I think that's it. I, I mean, I have always leaned on storytelling as my favoured form of writing for that reason, because it's a way to subliminally get across a message. Often if we say something bluntly, all you do is drive people to be defensive. Um, but if you can show examples of what you would like to see achieved in a way that helps people to embrace it rather than be confronted by it, then they will be making change within themselves and that's the best way for change to occur, I think. It's the only way, isn't it? I mean, it has to come from within. It can be forced on you, but that's not genuine change. Well, you resent uh, it, whole, don't you? That's exactly right. It's, just, it's part of the whole thing about lockdowns and masks and that whole discussion, which we won't get into, but it's that resenting being told that you have to. Interestingly, Adrian, you're a problem solver in many ways in your other life as a – I think you still work, don't you? Or do you just gallivant around playing golf? Uh, talk about the importance that Karen's touched on there between what seems like a good few decades of discussing the problem and moving into a phase where we start to talk about some of the solutions that have been undertaken and we can undertake from here because that often gets overlooked, doesn't it? Endlessly we bang on about what the problems are. That doesn't actually solve the problems. Yeah, well, one of the interesting things that I found about Karen's article is that it's structured, it's structured very much like a like a business proposal would be structured where it's defining the problem, um, discussing some of the potential uh, ways that it could go, and then providing a bit of a, a plan or blueprint for how we move forward. But importantly as well, I think it's recognising that uh, as part of that, you have to 
not necessarily be um, dogmatic about sticking to a plan like that. As Karen illustrated, her lived experience is different to the golf experience of young women, you know, starting to get into golf now or wanting to get into golf now. And therefore, the plan might need to change. Um, and I, I think that was there, there was the right balance of sort of open-ended blueprint there um, in the second half of the article, which I found. Uh, it, and, and you can only get there through extensive research. And this, this piece is extensively researched uh, and very well thought through. So um, piecing all of that together, I think, is is the amazing thing about this. And the result is something that, the governing body could put up on a wall and sort of say, look, here's our plan. You know, this has this been done for us now. <laughs> <laughs> this is the roadmap. <laughs> but it's a point in time. And uh, I think it's something you need to revisit from time to time and ask, you know, things are changing. The The landscape of golf's changing. The priorities of of uh, society at large are changing. We, we talk about this all the time, about how golf is stuck in its own little echo chamber. And we think, we talk about it with water quite a lot on this podcast, but the rest of the world has moved on and recognises what a precious commodity water is. Golf doesn't seem to get that quite yet. Um, certainly with gender equality and uh, all sorts of other um, issues around race equality and LGBT representation in golf as well. Um, these are things that golf has just completely left behind. So. Yes, there's a number of issues facing golf at the moment, isn't there, of which we're obviously focusing on gender equality in this piece, but it's part of a an issue of broader inclusion that definitely needs addressing. Then there are the side issues of the role in, of public golf in helping to grow the game, in introducing new players into the game. Uh, the sustainability aspect, I think, is seriously underestimated. Sustainability to me can be either environmental sustainability, i.e. course management and so on, but it, sustainability is also people sustainability. Mm. And that's part of what the article is about too. So mm. I think there's lots for golf to think about, but I think we are thinking about it. I think we're addressing things uh, in all of these different areas. Perhaps some are a little more forward than others. But we're getting there. We're making progress. And for such a long time, we were going backwards. Yeah. The frustrating thing about golf, of course, Karen, is that it's not this amorphous mass. You can't say golf does this and golf does that because it's got – there are so many entities within golf, mm. both official at the state and national level, and you've got the PGA, and then you've, you've got all sorts of – the junior golf has got all of its own foundations and whatnot. And so progress is always going to be piecemeal, isn't it? You need to look for – the examples that you want people to follow elsewhere. They're out there, aren't they? But they're not necessarily in the circle of clubs that I might frequent. Yeah, I think the beauty of golf is the capacity for diversity, um, but it also creates that issue of how do we manage that. And as you say, there's um, so many different types of players. There's so many different ways to consume golf other than just private club membership. Yeah. Um, and managing that is a balancing act. Um, I don't believe in homogeneity. I don't at all. I don't think that that's um, productive at all. But I do believe in harmony, which is managing your differences. And I think that the idea of the three main bodies, Golf Australia, the PGA and WPGA, developing a more unified approach, the AGIC with some of the other bodies in the golf industry also being part of that, 
it is imperative that that continue to happen. It's imperative that we be more welcoming to people of all sorts in golf, of all ages in golf, of all standards in golf. Um, that's the way for the game to prosper, as I see it. Because mm. we've hit this unusual problem, Adrian, in that COVID has boosted golf playing numbers after almost two decades of shrinking playing numbers, which had people for survival thinking about ways to do golf differently. The danger, of course, is we get this COVID boost and we go, actually, everything's okay, and we might go backwards. How do we avoid that as golf, this non-amorphous mass? And how does that nexus between leadership and action further down at club level happen? It's interesting, isn't it? I, I think, well, Karen's article covers this off, actually, that the, uh, the, the boost that golf has gotten from people looking to find exercise when they're in lockdown and in this unusual situation has uh, lifted women's participation in golf. However, the percentage relative to men is still is gone further down. It lo- looks actually worse. Is that right, Karen? Yes, it is. Um, yep. But in real numbers, the number of women and girls playing golf has increased, which is great. Yes, the raw figure itself went up, but because the raw figure of men went up that much higher, uh, I think there was only 12% of the increase related to females, whereas the year before it had been as high as 17%. Wow. Mm. So there was a disappointment, yeah. Right. But as Shiloh pointed yeah. out, and I quoted her in the article as saying that, um, there are more ways to measure female participation than just private club membership. Mm. It's still an intimidating arena for many women. It's still not a practical arena for many women. So they're still the things that we need to work around. But we know that the girls are there. We know that they're interested. Um, and we just have to try and work on transference. Mm. Yeah. We've got people like Shiloh Curtis, who works for Golf Australia, um, participation uh, in the participation area. And, uh, you know, the the new leadership that's at Golf Australia and in, in other um, peak bodies in Australia and around the world seems to be putting this issue forward as one of their main areas of focus, which is really great. And I think is a distinct change to what we've seen like from 10 years ago, say, um, where golf was just all about the club environment and uh, membership, driving people into membership. And uh, my experience at the golf club is seems okay. Golf seems healthy. You know, I, I get a game every week. I enjoy it. Like what's, What's the problem? You know, that I think that was golf's attitude 10, 15 years ago. Um, but now people are looking at the bigger picture and working out how to get people into golf in other ways other than via club membership. And, and that makes it a lot less exclusionary. Um, and uh, I, I think that's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting change. It, it, it almost needs this generational change, though, doesn't it, Karen? Yes, it does. And that will happen. It's certainly happening. Um, you know, your daughters and mine are having a different life experience than we did or our mothers. So that will certainly happen. Of course, we'd like to see revolution as well as evolution. Nothing ever comes fast enough, really, when it's a (laughs) highly desirable change. Well, we're all getting old, aren't we? The problem with generational change is it takes so bloody long. (laughs) Mm. Logue, of course, has already ruined golf for his daughter. He managed to take care of that a couple of years ago by taking her to a (laughs) clinic in the middle of winter at 7 o'clock. Uh, in the morning when it was freezing cold. So golf hasn't been on the horizon sort of for her. Interestingly, though, I mean, to the point, that was the only time, I think it might have even been 6am, 
but <laughs> that, that was the only time that the club makes available to juniors coming on. And, uh, yeah, that was – it only took two or three weeks of that before she's like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> this golf thing isn't for me. Like, I'm literally breaking through frost on the ground mm. and it's freezing and I haven't got the right clothes and, I don't, you know, it's all intimidating. And- I think golf has very much moved from being a seller's market to a buyer's market. That uh, Clubs used to be able to say, well, this is what we offer and you go along with that. But now the attitude of your daughter um, is, well, I don't have to do that. You know, they realise that they can prescribe what they want. Well, there's some interesting things ha- happen, haven't there? And business ultimately always dictates these things, business being supply and demand. And this is what we were starting to see pre-COVID. Golf clubs forced to make changes in all sorts of areas to be more inclusive simply because the pool of finance available from the pool of people they'd always drawn on was shrinking. Mm. So there's only one way to change that, and that's to expand the pool. And that's how inclusion kind of works. It might not be for noble reasons, but that's kind of how it works. So how do we sort of keep that going, Karen? I think you're right. The mix of golf availability changed or really changed from the 80s, 90s onwards. We had a whole influx of pay-for-play facilities. So golf clubs, who generally held the facility everybody wanted, the course – no longer had the stranglehold on supply. And so the club business model is under pressure, isn't it, Karen? How does that play with gender inclusion and inclusion more generally, club as a business model? Well, the clubs have to change their business model. It's that simple. If they want to survive and not just survive but thrive, um, the there's only so many women, full stop. So you've got a limit on the ones that have typically gone into golf clubs anyway and they are being lured away from the game or into alternative activities, obviously work, um, different sports that are fit in better with the modern lifestyle, that sort of thing. Uh, but there, there is other markets to tap into and that's what we're starting to realise. That, And that has two aspects to it. It's not just a commercial thing ah, let's get more inclusive because it's going to be commercially viable. It is morally right. We cannot say that golf is the game for everybody if if we don't make it for everybody. To me, nothing says inclusion like actually including. <laughs> and that... It sounds ridiculous, but it needs to be said, doesn't yeah. it? It's true. It's that simple, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Also, it's interesting that that lack of inclusion... I think an important part of moving that forward is realising that it's systemic, that there's this systemic ingrained lack of inclusion. And and I've been looking at um, – I, I like to borrow from other genres for some of this and, and look at um, things in other industries. Movie industry, I think, always find fascinating and the parallels between the movie industry and, and golf course architecture, like what it takes to – create a movie and what it takes to create a golf course. There's a lot of similarities there with project management and this auteur theory and things like that. Um, But that's for another time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The the movie industry thing that I I picked up on the other day after reading your article was the Bechdel test. Have you heard of this? The the Bechdel test is something that was created by uh, a cartoonist named Alison Bechdel. And it's a litmus test for how women are portrayed in movies. Mm -hmm. Um, you basically ask the question, 
does the movie feature at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man? <laughs> and there's an additional rider on that, which is uh, other women also named characters. And unsurprisingly, a very large percentage of movies don't pass this test. Like it's around 40% or something like that, that actually pass. So, oh, sorry. No, that fail. About 40% of movies fail, um, which is pretty shocking, but also at the same time, unsurprising. Um, and if you apply the reverse Bechdel test, like it, it, number of movies where two men are talking about something other than a woman, like actually driving the plot forward or actually, you know, just the business of the the plot of the movie, uh, it's almost 100% of movies pass that test. So, and are filmmakers setting out to to do this? Well, no, they're not. So, what does that suggest? It's it's systemic. It's just it's not con- it's not conscious and deliberate. But we, no simple test would be to urge everybody who's listening to, if you're a member at a golf club, have a think about your golf club. How many people are members of the golf club who are Muslim? Yep, or Arabic, uh, or Asian, or openly gay. Openly gay. Indeed. The, the, and if you apply this Bechtel test to golf, like how many times do we see in golf media two women talking about something other than gender issues in golf? Like this, this podcast isn't so, isn't passing the test. But didn't we just find the two test? Yes. Or, or two women talking about you know golf course architecture. Um, I don't. Do we ever see that? I don't um, recall saying. It's not to say it hasn't happened, but if, I don't recall it. No. Generally speaking, if two women are on a golf course architecture podcast or a TV segment, they're being asked to talk about women in golf course architecture or or the forward tees or something like that, Um, or just two women talking about playing golf. On the LPGA, thankfully, we do see that, Um, but, uh, you know, the the commentary team in the LPGA could be more diverse as well. Um, It always strikes me as there's a little bit of tokenism there. Um, But, yeah, golf doesn't pass the Bechtel test in any way, shape or form. And it also doesn't pass it for for racial issues and or nor for LGBTQ representation. Mm-hmm. Not even close. No, there's a lot of homework to be done. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Isn't in many ways I think what that suggests, Karen, golf reflects broader society, doesn't it? I mean it's and I think we sometimes fall as I won't call it a trap, is that yeah, golf has this problem or that problem. Invariably they're problems that are that we carry more broadly in society as well. Golf tends to amplify them in a smaller market, I feel Yeah, like. for years I have uh, said that golf is a microcosm of society itself um, and that's part of why this change is so difficult to effect because we're talking about a culture that has gone on probably since time began, you know, maybe. And people have bought since- into, importantly, Karen, if you're bought into a club membership, you're bought into that culture most likely and that's yeah. that's got some appeal. <laughs> so in fact- well, since pe- people were, pre, you know, the original hunters and gatherers, there was a gender stereotype right there, wasn't there, that the male was the stronger hunter and gatherer and so the female took, you know, did her own tasks and so on and it's just been reinforced through the years one way and another. Um, and... We have to try and change the tide, I suppose, that perhaps we've been swimming with the tide up to now, um, but it's not healthy. Um, you know, we're going into murky waters. So we really have to try and turn that tide. But, of course, it is a big job. As Adrian said before, it, it's a it's a big job. It, generational change will take some effect, but it is slow, Mm. Yeah. 
Indeed. Let's talk about some of the examples that we can look to. So it's important in these things. There'll be a bunch of people sitting at home listening to this and unhappy with some of the propositions we put forward and with all sorts of reasons why there's nothing wrong with the game and uh, that everything's fine the way it is and has been for generations. Why wouldn't you leave it alone? What are some examples that you uncovered, Karen, that you can tell people about where things have and are changing for the better and why we don't need to be afraid of that change if we are? We don't need to be afraid of change. Uh, Change uh, often feels like it's hard, um, but it's not necessarily bad. It might be different, but it's not necessarily bad. Uh, I think people are comfortable in the life that they've grown up living. Um, We are all socialised into our stereotypes we work comfortably within those. So this is where the new gender politics is coming in many respects, but we can talk about that in a moment. So I think that people naturally resist change. There's a little bit of what uh, Adrian referred to before, which is almost like an I'm all right, Jack, attitude. And my attitude is more along the lines of, well, look, if you were sitting on a bench and somebody came along who needed a seat, you would automatically move up and make room for them if you're a a decent human being, which almost everybody is, aren't you? It's not going to hurt you to move up and make room for somebody else. And if their need is greater than yours, often you'll stand up and let them have your place. I think we need to see changes. You not having to give up your place, but just make room for somebody else. There's plenty of room for everybody to be sitting there, so... I love that analogy. It's not threatening, is it? No. No. I love it. It's welcoming. It's It's just saying, well, actually, I'm having a great time at this. Why don't you come too? Hmm. Not. It's not you versus me. I think that's how a lot of people uh, become alarmed about it. Um, They think that the gulf that they have enjoyed is under threat, and it's not. We're saying, well, you can still play the game that you enjoy. That's fine. You do that. But let's make it. Uh, the form that's um, what other people want available to them. And so in the straw poll, of course, I've gone and said to um, the different types of women, or women at different stages, well, what would you like? And some of those answers were not su- surprising, of course, but a, a couple were. Well, it's inter- like you add a add a accessibility ramp to the entrance of a building. It doesn't take away the stairs. Mm. So, like, everyone, everyone else can still get into the building. So, where exactly. does the fear come from? Like, where does that fear come from? And you and I both know it, maybe even more so than Karen in some ways, because blokes say things to us at golf that we think, good Lord, <laughs> do you really think that way? Where does it come from? That It's probably partly that. Like, oh, I'm not going to be able to be myself at the golf club, something like that. No towels I'm snapping sure in the change rooms and all that sort of nonsense that we often sort of... Well... Yeah, you still get to. I, I still <laughs> nothing's going to stop me having like a towel fight in the change room, and you know, what, I can't all the stuff that. we get up Good to. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I think that's definitely a part of it. People think, oh, I'm going to have to watch what I say around the club now, and well, you probably should think about that anyway. <laughs> so, I've um, had a lot of men that, say that's the only downside I can think of. Maybe tea time competitiveness or something i've had a lot of uh, sorry to interrupt there adrian i've had a lot of men say to me that they are confused that they want to be respectful but they're just not sure what is the right thing to do or say 
And I think that part of what I'm referring to as the new gender politics is that I think that there are women who are confused now too. So to give you another analogy, it's a little bit like cleaning the fish tank. You know that it needs to be done. And so you start, it doesn't really look too bad. But then as you go, all the, the, the muck that's on the um, ground there just comes to the surface and it looks awful. And I think that we've been in that murky, awful stage and it's going to settle and everything will have greater clarity and so on. But for the moment, there's a lot of people that are in, a, in that stage of flux. They don't know where they stand. Um, they becoming defensive, want to cling to what they know, what they're comfortable with, what suits them, what they're happy with. Um, and and that's the challenge, the next challenge, is is to incorporate you being comfortable with everybody else being comfortable too. Mm. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because, of course, for the most part, all of these people that we're talking about who, who we think are afraid of change have adapted in some way to the life they have now. Mm. It's part of the reason they're comfortable. They've adapted to it. Now they understand it. Good. Well, we'll cling to that. The not wanting to to change again is interesting. And it's true, I think, for all of us. All of us at some point come across a change and we're like, oh, I don't like well, that. Well, I think many of the, the women that are uncomfortable at the moment don't realise that, in fact, they're living the life that they're living because somebody else, a lot of somebody else's, were fighting for that before them and before them, and before them. So feminism hasn't just started. Uh, this is about the fifth or sixth wave, depending on, you know, your version of feminist theory. But, um, you know, women need to remember that they are the beneficiaries of the women before them. And then, so they therefore have a responsibility to create that for the women that come after them. And we're talking about their daughters, their nieces, their mm. granddaughters, to leave something for them so that they're going to be as happy in golf as we are. For men, Adrian, this is important, is it not? Because once you have it, you've got a daughter. So you get to see the world a little bit through her eyes, don't you? You never have that opportunity as a bloke growing up until you might have a daughter. I think that's a real eye-opener for a lot of blokes. Am I right about that? And mm. that's a Yeah, I think you've got to be prepared to open your eyes as well. Um, there, there's some some sort of empathy. With a lot of these issues, it's it's absolutely invisible to you if it's not happening to you, has been my experience. So uh, I, I, I try to be really observant um, and I still miss, miss things all over the place. Um, but uh, I, I think that's important. And, and often I see the reaction from from men who would deny that there's an issue in in some areas and i think this relates not just to gender issues but just anything like workplace politics or you know whatever whatever it might be tensions between work colleagues or something if you, it's not happening to you it's almost invisible it's to you happening. and um it's yeah, it's just not happening if it's not happening to you it, it can be happening right in front of you and like at the same table in a golf club um, and you just you're just not recognizing it for what it is because it's not happening to yeah. you. Um, and I think there's just some awareness of trying to trying to show a bit of empathy and and put yourself in the other person's shoes and and reflect on your own actions as much as anything else. When my kids were little, I put them through an exercise. I, I think they were well and truly sick of my analogies <laughs> by the time they left home. <laughs> 
But I took them over near the window one day and I said to them, I want you to look at the window, just the window. And, of course, you know, you look at the window, you see the smudges, you can see the the streaks of rain behind you there, Adrian. Uh, You're aware that there's something beyond, but you're looking at the window. You don't see beyond. If we were to now bring down a blind, you you don't see the window and you certainly don't see what's beyond. If we then add curtains, draw the curtains, you only see what you are allowed to see. And so I've said, said to the kids, if you want to get a truth, if you want to get at what's possible, you need to not just draw the curtains back and lift the blinds. You need to also clean the windows and then you need to stand there and have a look. And you'll see out there things that you didn't realise was there. And you must always look for that. And and they developed a lifetime. <laughs> they, they all moved out They did pretty much, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they did suggest to me that I should put on my... Trigger, trigger warning to any people there who've got... One of them issues. told me I should put behavioural analogist on my tax return. <laughs> Indeed. Karen, I've got to give a hat tip here to Emma Ballard, and this will make sense when I explain why. Emma Ballard from Women and Golf, Mm -hmm. who's a terrific follower on Twitter, formerly of Mediate PR firm in the UK. Um, Terrific lady and and, and doing some great stuff with the Women and Golf Mag. But she tipped me into this, a Twitter account called Man Who Has It All. Oh, yes. And this will open your – if you're struggling with this notion of, you know, not being able to see it, if I can't see it, surely it's not real, it's fantastic. And all this account really does is basically switch the words women for men in a lot of instances and changes the tone of everything. So there was a golf one. There was a golf one the other day, which I saw you retweeted, Karen. It might have been yesterday. Mm. I'm interviewing a gentleman golfer about what it's like to try to play golf at the same time as being a man. Mm. What should I ask him? That's incredibly telling, isn't it? And whilst it's extraordinarily humorous, this thread, there's something to be learnt, isn't there? I often find myself being confronted at just having the the words switched and what that says to you about what it must be like to be a woman and have been for hundreds of years. It's extraordinary. Yes, it, it's a fabulous thread, that one. It's full of some really witty remarks and um, couching some very valid questions. There's just showing how ridiculous some of the things that are put to women. So, yeah, you certainly come out of it with a welcome to my world uh, thinking. So, mm. But we all accept it, don't we, Karen? This is part of this. We're all born into the world, girls and boys. Women and men aren't born. Girls and boys are born, obviously, and grow too. And over your whole life, this is how the world presents to you. And we all adapt to that, don't we, and accept it to some point and at some point. It's odd, isn't it? Except to some point is correct. Uh, I think that we're accepting things less than we used to, and that's a good thing. Perhaps we're looking through the the window, Adrian. <laughs> mm. no, I'm reading The Man Who Has It All. Yeah, no, it's I, fabulous, I isn't it? He's brilliant. <laughs> My friend's designing whiskey for men. It'll be like normal whiskey, but specially adapted. What should it be like? You can see that headline in a million stories that you've read over years, change the word men out for women. It's, it really is quite confronting to read, and it is, uh, it, is, it is sort of extremely funny. What happens moving forward, Karen? If you're a member at a golf club and you're either committed to the system as it's always been and the golf that you've always enjoyed the way you've always enjoyed it as being exclusionary, and part of golf's problem, I think part of the reason golf clubs amplify a lot of these societal issues is because of this exclusionary nature. Men who would otherwise and are otherwise 
quite normal for want of a better term and understand these issues in the workplace and at home, they walk through the door at the golf club and turn into cavemen immediately. Everywhere but here, there seems to be an attitude of. They, they say and do things at the golf club they would never do and say outside of the golf club. I don't know what that's about, but I think that's true for a lot of people. But what's the way forward for both those who think everything's fine and for those who'd like to see things change? What can we all do as individuals? Well, it's a good question, and I think that different people are going to have different ways of going about it. I think that change needs to come from the bottom up, which is education, storytelling. It needs to come from the top down, which is governance. Um, And golf clubs need to take responsibility for the attitudes of their members in terms of their club policies. Uh, Is that difficult? Because clubs, of course, are there to serve members. It can be difficult to lead under those circumstances, can't it? If you're the GM at a golf club who wants to institute some policies, technically your bosses are the members. If they don't like those policies, that's an awkward place to be, isn't it? It is an awkward place to be, but on the other hand, the consequences of not making the necessary changes are that your pool of members is going to diminish because of the aforesaid buyer's market. People are not going to join your club. Your club is not going to have the income. Um, it's it's going to start to dwindle. So I don't think they have a choice, to be honest. Maybe the, the upper, absolute upset, upper echelon, um, but there's not even... Yeah, there'll always be that to retreat yeah. to yes. if, if you're really worried about losing... Like, don't worry, there'll always be exclusionary clubs. Yeah, that's extended. <laughs> if you- I, I, can't, I can't see is it right- society ever being that enlightened that... You know, you won't have. Is it right to exclude the exclusionary? I don't know. There's an interesting moral barrier there, isn't it? If somebody wants yeah, to be exclusionary, should we exclude them because of that? Um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been sort of the the rampant thing. Golf. What's your overall feeling, Karen? Are you? I know that generally you're a pretty optimistic person. I tend to be the opposite. I can find the cloud on any silver lining you care to point out. But is the future for golf bright? I believe so. I think there's great cause for positivity and enthusiasm for the next phase and then beyond that. I mean, I think we're now seeing great women doing great things in all areas of the game. I think we're seeing numbers grow in all areas of the the game. Um, I think there's a couple of sluggish areas and golf media might be one of them. Um, But I think we are seeing more women be attracted to playing the game and by expanding the entry points and there's a lot of engagement groups starting up so we've got a lot of work going on in engagement which is really good so i think that we just have to keep going review what we're doing over and over redirect energies where we need and keep doing that over and over it's a process Um, i think we'll see compound growth from that that as i say once you start to turn the, the tide uh, and then you ultimately have the tide behind you, then we can really start to see some fantastic things happening. Um, I'm actually quite excited about that, naturally. It's been a long time coming, um, and I, I'm looking forward to it, yeah. Mm. You touched on one. Here's some things from uh, – sorry, Rob. Here's some things from Karen's article as well. Dress rules at clubs. Mm. Yeah, mo- modernise the dress rules. Less of a focus on competitions. Um Tea times. Think about the times that people can play, and and how a two tea start or a multi tea start can actually block out parts of the day where people who are you know dropping kids off or have uh, job responsibilities that mean they can't get 
to the golf club at a certain time means they don't really have a tea time that they can uh, that they can use. Um, I've, I've never thought about this, but you've mentioned one tea starts are the most inclusive tea times at mm. all because uh, it just goes all day. It does go all day. It's- it means that people, for example, older people, people with disability who perhaps take more time to get going in the morning, uh, they can play at 10, 30, 11, 1 o'clock, whatever time suits them. It means that kids can finish school. Now, sometimes they might finish some days at 2.30. Sometimes they finish at the stand at 3.30. They can come along then. If you still like to play at your 7.30 or 8 o'clock, do it. It's there. I do know from some of the club pros that there are some logistical issues with that. Um, But I think that pretty much anything has, if not a perfect solution, there is a strategy. There's a way around anything if you have a mind to find it. One tea start on some days of the week. Obviously, there's an imperative to, from a financial point of view, to get as many people on the course as possible and multi-tea starts optimise that. Mm. So um, it's not for every day of the week. But some days of the week, have a one tea start. I think that's well, a number of clubs are doing unusual. that. Huntingdale, for example, has a one tea start yep. every Friday. Um, yep. They are being used, and actually, the National is another one that always has a one tea start. Which, yeah, it gives people time to commute to get down there, of course. But Huntingdale um, is finding that they get a, a full time sheet, and people are happy to play times that other people have considered odd in the past, like 10 to 11, <laughs> things yep. like that. How about, how about this one? Childcare at golf mm. clubs. That, why, I don't, that, that's one I'm not sure why. I mean, well, I know why, but it's, it's always associated with women. women and girls trying to get into golf <laughs> yep. when, you know, why, why isn't it an issue for men? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, I mean, most <laughs> other sports that women play have some sort of provision for children in there, you it's you can either take the children with you. For example, tennis, I used to take the, the kids with me uh, and perhaps the other players might keep an eye on them while you're on the court. There's a creche at gyms. There are ways... Uh, one of the young mothers said something to me about perhaps certain clubs perhaps joining together to hire part-time, if need be, um, an early education teacher... Or some of the more the clubs with more land, perhaps even build an early learning centre that could serve as several of the local clubs that are perhaps close together. That obviously doesn't work in the country, for example, where the clubs are more disparate. It's an early early jump on turning kids against golf early too, because they don't associate golf with being educated. So exactly, <laughs> you guarantee the, the next generation won't like. Well, I think the, so. the, the earlier you expose kids to golf, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they associate, you know, they can be taken out with their plastic clubs and, and do yeah. little games that are subliminally in getting them into to golf. Yep. And the more that they see that that's a fun thing to do and it's not stuffy, uh, y- you will still always need formal introductory programs. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But you can encourage kids to have a better attitude to golf and to see it as something that's cool. Instead of, for example, if little kids know that their parents go to golf, but they don't, it's already exclusionary in their minds, isn't it? But if it's open to them, oh, we're all going. One of my favourite photos in all of golf is Kari Webb sitting on the trolley seat of her granddad's golf clubs Mm. as a four- or five-year-old being 
pushed along at the course. And we all know what Kari's gone on to achieve in the game. And that starts there. If you don't have that, we might not have Kari Webb. She might have been a cricketer or a football player or a swimmer or something else. You know, golf might not have been an option. And it, it's that important uh, at that level. You touched on something earlier or mentioned the word, one of my favourite words earlier, Karen, media. Mm-hmm. There's not as many women in golf media as men. What do we do about that? Is it because they're not interested? I look around the Australian golf media landscape. It's the one I know best, obviously, being a part of it. There aren't many women. You're one of the few. I'm trying to think of women golf writers in Australia, and I'm struggling beyond you. Kirsty Russ. Sorry? Kirsty Russ. Yeah, they're not technically media. She works for Golf Australia Queensland, uh, so one of the, the governing bodies. It's a real issue, Karen, and I wonder whether – I, I look around and wonder what we can do about that, and I'm in the media. What, what do we do about that? How do we help that to change? Uh, well, you know that I feel quite strongly about that um, because I feel that we need to have women in golf media, if only to have that female perspective. I do think that we look at some stories differently. I think women lend themselves to the storytelling aspect extremely well. Now, that doesn't mean there's not great men storytellers, but I do think that... Um, perhaps women have a natural empathy for certain types of stories. And I think we need that voice too. Um, As far as drawing women into golf media, it is a problem because most of the young golf journalists are attracted to the bigger sports uh, and that's where they're all headed. Um, I'd like to hope that if we can create a bigger profile for golf it'll become a game where some of the young journos will say well I'd like to be part of that I'd like to report on golf I'd like to be one of the storytellers so that's my hope there there are other girls that are writing on golf I think I might be the only one that comes from a media background a journalistic that's, background. Um, that's not really a problem either if you come from a marketing background or some other sort of a background you're bringing that perspective and it's part of inclusion in media too that we have a variety of perspectives I guess my concern is is there's so few coming from that journalism perspective because there are certain skills that journalists use that we need to have as part of the overall telling of the stories yeah, I actually I think it's a problem not just with younger women, younger people being part of golf media uh, is an issue. Working mm. uh, media. Well, there's a problem in media generally, isn't there? Of course, general, the way well, that it's all changing, or not a problem, but there's a there's change there. Uh, I actually say I think there is a problem, Karen. There is a problem. I think the biggest w- problem here in Australia is the fact that we don't have as large a tour as, say, you know, obviously the European tours or the American tours. So. You know, many years ago when there were more golf tournaments, you would have dedicated golf riders. There's not enough really for dedicated golf riders to write about. Yeah. I'm less interested in people writing about the tours who have enough of their own resources to promote that particular part of the game, you know, the professional part of the game. All of the tours have their own media arms these days to do that. Mm, That's true. The game more broadly, journalists bring something. Properly trained journos are like properly trained electricians. 
they're kind of important to the whole of society. And you, know, you can be as inclusive if you like with electricity, but you're going to lose a few along the way. <laughs> they touch the two wires together that they shouldn't <laughs> if someone who knows electricity hasn't showed them. And journalism is no different. And what we're losing across the board, not just golf, is newspapers, which has only has been the only training ground really for journalists historically. Radio and television don't produce journalists. So somebody needs to mentor young people, some people who have those skills, and I don't see the framework for that, and that's an ongoing problem uh, to me. And it's not just young women missing from golf media, it's young blokes. There's young people. Uh, you know, I'm one of the youngest. Oh, that's, a, that's absurd. You don't need to look at me tonight. There, there are, content is out there if you look for it, I think. We, on this network, there's Kelly Price has a, has a podcast on this network. Uh, she's not from... You know, golf media background, but an academic background. I think that's interesting. Uh, one I'd mention, uh, winner on the Symmetra Tour this week, Meg McLaren. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I'd consider her part of golf media. In fact, you know, she has a regular column. You know, she writes better than most of us. So I think yes, yeah, and <laughs> and she writes very well. And she's a member of the golf media in the same way that you know Peter Thompson would be, where you know he went and brought his typewriter to a tournament, would play, and then. Accept a, accept the trophy and then write up his own victory. Write up his own victory. That's uh, extraordinary. <laughs> and send it in. Or, you know, like Mike Clayton does. And, uh, you know, aren't we all that, that whole, the golf media content landscape is so much richer for the addition of those people. Um, and Meg McLaren, I think is, is interesting in particular, um, part, and partly, you know, circling back to the discussion we've just had in that a lot of what she writes about isn't about women's issues. She's, she's associated with that. But if you read her blog, it's mostly about professional golf and being a professional athlete mm. and the struggles of being a professional athlete. There's barely anything in there about women's issues. And, and yet that's that's the the label that she's been given. I, I think if she was uh, under the direction of an editor in a magazine on permanent staff or in a newspaper or a big media organisation... She wouldn't have that same flexibility. She'd be asked constantly to write about the women's tour or women's issues in golf. Um, whereas, you know, the fact that she's more or less independent, she can she's free to explore the topics that are actually of interest to her, which is just playing golf and being a professional athlete and the struggle of that. Yeah, well, she's certainly and, and writing the, about the highs and the lows what of she that. knows, isn't she? Um, That's mm. right. And she's not going around. It's interesting because she's obviously not going around all day thinking about gender equality issues. And yet that's what she's associated mm. with. Um, she's going around all day thinking about being a, a world-class athlete. Mm. <laughs> and having just one, she's uh, she's well on that way. I had a quick discussion with Meg on Twitter DMs and there is a chance that she may make an appearance on the pod in the next few days or week to talk about that because that was a big moment. It was interesting to see the reaction to that, Karen. And Meg's probably a good example of – Shining light would be the wrong word, but my goodness, we'd all be better off if there were more Meg McLarens, wouldn't there? She's, she plays an important role, and you could see from the reaction on Twitter, her profile's much bigger than her golf resume because of her writing and, what, and that narrative we talked about and the way it sort of has touched people. All golfers read her column and understand the things she talks about because they're about golf. They're rarely about gender equality, but it makes her an important part of that golf media mix, doesn't it? Yeah, I really think it does. I think, um, as you say, fellow golfers understand what she's writing about. Um, but people who aren't playing golf at that level have got no idea. And it frequently just looks glamorous. So what Meg's writing provides an insight into what's really happening. More and more we're hearing about 
mental health in elite athletes, aren't we? And finding that it's just not as glamorous as it might seem, that it can be very wearing to do all that travelling, to worry um, about making enough to have accommodation at your next stop. Loneliness, um, you know, you're, you're in a different bed all the time, you're on planes all the time. There's a lot of things that are just not glamorous about being an elite athlete. And I think that now that more elite athletes are speaking out about that, we're getting to see the human side of them. And for storytellers, that's important um, because they join you by bringing a unique perspective to what the reader can read. Yeah, indeed. I think Ryan's doing that with the Monday Q Info case of the golf. I was, I was about to say, <laughs> yeah, Monday Q Info, just follow that. Yeah. It, we should all it be thankful to be born without that. any talent, shouldn't we, Lowe? It's been a lucky break, ultimately, that we didn't have to face those issues of being talented and having to go and face all of that nonsense. Oh, Perfect absolutely. place to be. Like, it gets me every time that these guys are so good. Yes. And, that, like, you know, you could be um, – yeah, Meg McLaren is one of the 300 best in the world at what she does – at, at this thing that many people attempt, <laughs> millions of people attempt mm. it uh, and dedicate large portions of their life to it. She's one of the 300 best in the world at it and uh, or 200, probably much, much higher than that now. Um, and, uh, you know, and yet it's a struggle to earn a living. If you're the 200th best uh, journalist in the world, You'd expect to be making a pretty good living, I'd, I'd imagine. Mm. See, not working media never has been. Doesn't understand at all, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so hundreds, it- not many people out of the world population. Like that's you're right up the pointy end there. That's the far tail, far right hand tail. How many rich journo's? I, I, the other thing I was, would add to that too is is that I think we often forget just how young these athletes are. Oh, God, I know. And they were asking for an awful lot of maturity on those young shoulders. And, you know, it's no wonder um, some of them are starting to feel the strain. It's not that they're weak. It's that the pressure is huge. There is so much pressure from sponsorship. Uh, There is so much more scrutiny. We've said that traditional media might be fading a little bit, but there's much more scrutiny on social media because anybody can call themselves a journalist there and they're not bound by things like libel and they'll say some terrible things. And, you know, athletes are people just like the rest of us. You know, they have emotions, they have their insecurities, they have their vulnerabilities. And I think we need to just put a little kindness in there. Yeah, indeed. When I sat down with Meg for the thing about golf podcast that I do for BJ at Golf Australia Museum, in-depth discussion, we scrolled through. She screenshots some of the responses she gets when she does write about gender equality issues. It's beyond depressing. It's offensive. Mm. Some of the nonsense that people just – and, of course, they're always anonymous. Um, you know, they never got their name on their Twitter feed. Jack – come over Jack somebody was was a particularly horrendous offender and you're right that's all sort of part of that um Karen are you going to tell the story about the day you played Gabby Ruffles in Pennant or would you like me to <laughs> how did you come by this story it's funny you should say that I got speaking of an anonymity I got an anonymous email <laughs> overnight would you like me to read it well I can tell you the story i had played pennant not as much as most people uh, because of work and 
and that sort of thing. Uh, and my last pennant season, full pennant season, was around 2004. Um, and then I had a long break. But around 2000, I'd had injuries and surgeries and illness and things as well as work. But around 2015, I started to feel quite good. And I th- was invited to the pennant squad. And I thought I would give it one last go and just see how I went. And that perhaps, you know, because I enjoyed match play, I might be able to mentor the girls in the squad. Playing for Karen? Yarra Yarra. Club. Yarra Yarra. So I wasn't Yarra. expecting to make the team. But I thought that I could, would just really give it my best shot and, you know, see how far I could push them. Uh, but I, I did make the team. I was mostly playing on the Fridays because it's Fridays and Sundays. Uh, but this particular week, um, I was selected to be an emergency for the Sunday team. And as it turned out, one of the players had a back injury on the Saturday. So I was called up to play and we were playing Victoria, which were the top team and included Gabby and I drew Gabby and I was receiving quite a few sympathetic looks <laughs> but how long had she been playing she'd only spot, been playing you? about a year and a half so she was very oh. raw oh. now I so well you had you know a good couple of decades on her then well <laughs> I was going to say 10 years <laughs> in terms of practice <laughs> she also had she was about a foot taller than me um, and, of course, she had enormous natural talent, even at that stage. Uh, so out I went. I, look, I was actually excited about it, where other people were giving me sympathetic looks. I was excited because I thought this is a fantastic opportunity to see a future LPGA player up close because you do see somebody differently when you play them than when you're yeah. walking along, you know, as a spectator. So off we go, um, and she won the first two holes, and I was okay with that. Um, I did think to myself, gosh, this is what losing 10 and 8 feels like. <laughs> <laughs> you can't lose 10 and 8 unless you lose the first two, Karen. Now, the next part, I will tell you, does actually include a reference to Mike Clayton, um, but I will say that... Uh, he is not damaged in the telling of this story. In fact, the end of the story is a lot better for Mike than it was for me. So he came to the 12th and somehow I won the hole, which was rather exciting, if a shock. And in my excitement, I headed – this is at Commonwealth, by the way. I headed over – we'd gone off the 10th tee, so I headed over to the 13th tee. Now, pr- on the way to the 13th tee, you do actually pass the 8th tee which had previously had quite a lot of shrubbery around it. And there had been some courseworks being done at the course, headed up by Mike, and the shrubbery had been removed. And in in a combination of my excitement and focus, I went to the correct tee, but I faced the wrong fairway. And I, I looked at it and I thought... Gee, they have changed this hole. (laughs) (laughs) Ask Clayton about this. Totally different. And nobody said anything and I I shaped up and and I hit what I thought was a really nice drive, but nobody said anything. I will say there were a lot of spectators there, mostly people supporting (laughs) or wanting to see Gabby. Of course, nobody was there for me. Uh, Oh, my husband was. Uh, He might be the leak, is he? In this, sorry, he's the one who leaked the story. I can't hear you. Yeah. Anyway, so I hit this driver. Absolutely nobody said a word, and I thought, oh, oh well. 
But people were looking at each other and then Gabby's caddy came over to me and the referee said, you've hit the ball down the wrong fairway. (laughs) (laughs) And I just said, oh. And I looked at the other fairway and I thought, oh, yes, that does look like the 13th. (laughs) Makes a lot more sense. (laughs) So Gabby's uh, caddy said very generously, said, we could recall the ball. And I said, why would you want to do that? You know, I'm the one who's made the mistake. So, no, no, don't recall the ball. We'll just, just, we'll just go on. So Gabby hit a lovely drive and off we head, she down the 13th, me down the 8th. <laughs> <laughs> and I found my ball and I've, to get back to the 13th, I've got this tiny little gap. And I thought, oh, and I meant a high gap because there was still low uh, undergrowth there. So I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to lose the hole anyway. I'll just have a crack. So I had a crack and by some miracle it actually went through this tiny little hole and landed back on the 13th. And uh, Gabby actually duffed her next shot. So I was still in it with a chance. (laughs) The ultimate thing of it was that I lipped out a putt and she won the hole. So... We were back to normal now. All was right with the world. But as I was going to the next tee, a guy in a Commonwealth logo jumper walked past me and he said, well, you can thank Mike Clayton for that. (laughs) 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 And I said said to him, well, it's not Mike's fault. He's not the idiot who hit it down the wrong fairway. (laughs) And he said, well, there's been three members do it just this week. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not really going to buy into this right at this moment because I really need to get over to the 14th perhaps and, and tee off. So, yeah, so that was my um, – it, it was a good – it was a really good game. I enjoyed it very much. She's, she was very raw, but you could see just how much talent there was. And, of yeah. course, we've seen how she performed so well over the weekend. She was the best yeah. performed of the Australians. Yeah. Um, her world got ranking has – uh, gone to 121, I think it is, which is her lowest so far. Um, that She's made terrific progress in this her rookie season. Uh, th- and I'm sure she, like she, points to that pivotal match that day at Commonwealth as one of the turning points. <laughs> well, she's not returning my calls for some reason. <laughs> I'm not sure what's happened there. Because <laughs> you don't know, you don't know, don't know your way around the golf course. She doesn't want to play with you again. You end up taking you down the down the wrong holes. It's a fabulous story, Karen. I love that story. What was the ultimate result? What did you tail her up by? You can say anything you want here because nobody knows. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, we went to the twenty third. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. Been a joy to have you on the show, Karen. Where can people find you on Twitter? At KarenHarding123. And I'll put that in the show notes. Of course, it'll magically appear in the show notes. Somehow I'll put a link to the article in the show notes. Do yourself a favour if you haven't. Subscribe to Golf Australia magazine. It's a a terrific read. But go out and buy the June issue or make sure to read the story in the show notes and put it in your bookmarks. It really is not only a great read, it really is an important story. And it's been fantastic of you to come along and talk about it with us today, Karen. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Least we could do, literally. Logue, you and I have failed the Bechtel test, but uh, mm-hmm. it's been good to have you aboard regardless. Thank you, Rob. And that's it. Episode 82, I think I said. Uh, good, good in the books. We will, of course, be back to do it all again next week with episode 83 here at the Good, Good Golf Podcast.